Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. Um, just want to say thank you for everybody who was praying for us this week. Um, well, I'll let you be the judge of whether or not God is answering your prayers today. <laughs> yeah, the sermon. Uh, but it was a pretty jammed up week, pretty busy, but uh, God helped us to get everything in. So thank you for that. And, and uh, you know, just, just keep praying until Jamie comes back. You know, I don't want to wreck anything around here, all right? So uh, if you have your Bibles or you have your phones or you want to use the Bible that's in the pew or if you need a Bible to take home with you, grab the one that's in the pew and the scriptures will be up on the screen as well. But we're going to look at Revelation 21, starting with verse 22 all the way through 27, which would be the end of the chapter. Um, whether we recognize it or not, our hearts long to be satisfied in God's glory. Uh, we, we long for beauty. So we go to the beach, we sit on the beach, we watch the sunrise or the sunset, depending on, you know, where you are, which coast you're on. Uh, we love, we long for majesty. Uh, and so we like to maybe hike in the mountains and see that glory there. Uh, splendor, we like, we like splendor. I don't know, I know. I watched the coronation of His Majesty the King Charles III, okay? There's a reason why he's called Majesty, because it was pretty majestic, everything that, that went through that old coronation. And, and the glory of His Majesty wasn't just in the coronation portion of it and the dignitaries who were there, but all of those military troops and bands that went before and after his carriage, it was splendiferous. You know what I'm saying? That's a good word, isn't it? I didn't make it up, but I'm glad somebody did. We also like nights, uh, lights in the night sky, don't we? We like to see the stars, the, the, the moon, um, uh, meteor showers, fireworks on the 4th of July. We just like that stuff. Well, God made us that way. God made us to long for his beauty. That's why Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 33, show me your glory. He wanted to see the beauty and the splendor and majesty of God. Nobody saw the glory and the majesty of God face to face until Jesus appeared. And that's what John said. We've touched his glory. We saw his glory face to face. Now, last week's sermon was about the glory of the church in the new heavens and new earth. This week, the passage is about the glory of God and what it means to live in the light of that glory. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Because it shows us where we are headed and what's in store for us. And we do pray that you will help us to understand well what's going on in this text. And that you will bless us for reading it and hearing it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Now there's two words I want you to become familiar with. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. And the Greek word is doxa where we get our word doxology. In fact, I'm going to close the service today with a doxology that comes from Jude. And all it means is praise. It's a praise to God. Now, when we apply these two words to people of honor and dignity, um, uh, it means that there's something about them and the reality of their majesty. And when it's applied to God, it means his glory and his wonder. So even David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. Other ways that God has revealed his glory in scripture is through his kingly rule, 
his presence with his people. Just think of the Old Testament where the people, you know, they, they had a, a fire by night and a cloud by day. They were, they were seeing the glory of God in these manifestations. And there's another way that we see the majesty of God, and that's in the thunderstorm. So in the next time you hear a thunderstorm, just go, huh, the majesty of God is on the scene. Now, we are made for God's glory, so we are to take the glory of God seriously. And here's the first reason from Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. This is God speaking, and he says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. So we are created, our purpose for being created is the glory of God. But there's also another thing about the glory of God we need to know. Paul wrote it to uh, the Corinthian church and he said, whether you eat or drink, pretty insignificant things, aren't they? This is eating, drinking. Did you have coffee this morning? If you did, I hope you drank it to the glory of God. I certainly know I did. I needed it. <laughs> God, thank you for the coffee, I said. So we do these insignificant things for the glory of God in whatever you do, whether it's eating a meal or listening to a sermon, it's for the glory of God. But there's also a serious matter about the glory of God that we all should be aware of. And that is this. Paul wrote it to the Roman church and he said, for all, that is, all people without exception have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the root of every problem in the world, everywhere, at all times. People refuse to live for the glory of God. They don't honor God with their thoughts, their words, or their actions. Our greatest sin is that we reject the enjoyment of the glory of God for lesser gods. So here's the definition of the glory of God. The glory of God is his infinite beauty and greatness in manifold perfections. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. The glory of God answers four of our greatest longings. The greatest longings of the human heart to be known, to be changed, to live for something greater than ourselves, and to love, and to be loved. So let's look at how that is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 22, um, Paul, I'm sorry, John writes this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, John had previously said this was a great city. So let's think about great cities for a moment. What if there was a great city, you know, New York, Boston, Uxbridge, great city, and there's no restaurants in it, no coffee shops in it, no libraries in it, no places where people could congregate. What kind of a city would that be? It'd be kind of boring, wouldn't it? Because great cities have places where people can gather together and talk and enjoy the company of one another. It would be a lonely place without places like that. You know, during the pandemic, we saw that happening. We saw that lonely place happening in people's lives. In fact, I just saw this this morning. The American Psychology Association said that loneliness spiked during the pandemic and afterwards. 
uh, increased poor quality of uh, social connectedness. Um, mental health risks came out of it, even physical health risks. The Harvard Gazette said that the stress of the COVID being isolated, the stress on teens and young adults especially, hit them hard by loneliness because these are the years when young people are preparing to move out into the world on their own. But they couldn't do that now, and they couldn't see each other. And being social creatures, they felt lonely. Now, if we need interaction with other people, just on the horizontal level for a well-balanced life, how much more do we need communion with God? The Jerusalem temple was the place where God met with his people, and he communed with them there. Now, their access was limited, of course. You know, a, a priest uh, once a year, could the high priest could go in once a year. Um, there, was, there were uh, 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 limited access, uh, limited to a particular place and time, and particular rituals. The entire system of sacrifice in the temple was a way of God communicating and co having communion with his people to let them know some very important things about himself and them in relation to each other. The first thing was to let them know that he is holy. There are holy standards for God. The second thing to let his people know was that they did not live up to those holy standards. However, God let them also know he has provided mercy for them so that they could remain in relationship with him. Now, this was so ingrained in the people of God in the Old Testament, it was absolutely impossible for them to even consider a place without a temple or a worship without sacrifices or a priest to do those sacrifices. That temple in Jerusalem identified them for the people of God that they were. If they were to take that temple away, if it didn't exist any longer, they wouldn't know who they are. They would have lost their identity. They would have been at sea and not knowing who they are in the place in, all, in the world, in their place in the world. But Jesus predicted that this was going to come about. You might remember the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus met a woman from Samaria at the well, at Jacob's well. And they engaged in a conversation. And she was asking Jesus, well, you know, you, you Jewish people say we should worship in Jerusalem, but we have this worship temple over here. So where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus didn't give her a place. He said, let me tell you, there is coming a time and the hour is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. No location, no building, just the Father. The DNA of the human heart is designed with a need to commune with God in worship. You know, the fact is we must worship something. All our lives, we're looking for something to worship. And if it's not God, if we're, if we're not going to worship God, we're going to worship something less than God. Food, entertainment, careers, other people, it wouldn't matter. The design that God has made of us it makes our need to be rescued from worshiping lesser gods so, so important so that we can commune with the great God. Now, the Old Testament temple was a building and spoke about this communion with God, um, but it was a building. And the heart can't be long sustained by the beauty of a temple. The beauty of our salvation is that we can be known by God and by the Lamb.
And knowing God is life's highest goal. The Westminster Confession says it this way. The chief end of man, the chief end of humanity is to know God and enjoy him forever. That's it. That's our job description. That's what we were created for, to know God, to enjoy him. Everything else is wonderful, but that is first. And that is our boast in God, that we know him. Jeremiah 29, uh, actually Jeremiah um, uh, was preceded by Paul, and they both said the same thing. Thus says the Lord God, uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul wrote about this in First and Second Corinthians, that the glory, if you, if you want to think of it this way, the glory that we have as the church is that we know God. But there is another aspect to this knowing God that is supremely important, and that is that God knows us. God knows us. C.S. Lewis put it this way, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son, seems a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. It is so. Knowing and being known is our boast right now, right now today. Knowing God and being known by God is something that we can boast in. We can say, this is true. And Paul wrote it to the church. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This, this knowledge, I think, is an unspeakable comfort. You know, think about it. How might our lives be energized by the fact that knowing God and being known by God means that his constant knowledge of us and watching over every detail of our lives is to bring good into our lives. We know that now. We don't have to wait for the new creation to boast. We can boast in that even now. It's an incredible incentive to worship God and the Lamb forever. Now, there's a second longing of the heart that is satisfied in the new creation by the glory of God, and that is that we are changed for the better. Here is what uh, John wrote. And uh, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to take us into our Wayback Machine. I found, I found a few people in the first service who actually kind of were, they, they understood what I was talking about, which is great. Okay, here's the Wayback Machine. This is a song by the Moody Blues. How many have ever heard of the Moody Blues? A few of you? I think the Moody Blues were almost as good as the Beatles, but don't quote me on that. It might get Beatle fans really mad. So here's a song. There's a song that came out very early in the uh, early or mid-70s, about the time uh, when I was still in college and I was looking for work in theater and all of that stuff, and I was very dissatisfied. And the song came out, and there was one, uh, two lines in the song that just went when the first time I heard them, they just went right in here. And the songs are this. I'm looking for someone to change my life. I'm looking for a miracle in my life. Now, this is not a Christian song. 
And it just struck me because that's exactly where I was at that time. I wanted to change. And I felt like I couldn't change. And I was looking for change. And evidently, those guys were looking for change. A few years later, I gave my life to the Lord. Guess what happened? I got changed. This is what Jesus does. This is what Christ does. The word kabod also describes someone who is, who is bright and light and, and has splendor. Isaiah foresaw the brightness of Christ as the transformative power in people's lives before John did. Here's what Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah. He didn't know his name, Jesus, but he knew the Messiah, and he wrote this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Talking to the Messiah, your light, your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. According to John, everything that's light is good. Everything that's dark is bad. You see this happening in the book of John and his letters. Light and darkness, light and darkness. Several things come to mind when you read through the Gospel of John about the, the light that, brought, that Jesus brought. It says that he is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the nations, and they need to see the reality of things in his light. Jesus cannot be overcome by the darkness, John said. But the most significant thing about Jesus that John said that he was the light, it, it stands for the life of Christ. Here's what he said in chapter 1. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So for John, life represents everything that's good. Light is everything that's good, but darkness represents everything that's fallen, everything that's in rebellion against God. The darkness energizes the power that's behind all evil. This is what John said. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But Jesus entered the world, and when he entered the world of unbelief and lost people, he rescued them from the darkness, and he gave new life. This is the transforming power of the light of Christ. And everywhere that Jesus went, Whenever he touched some darkness, life was transformative. John told a story, in fact, about this very thing in order to convince us to have faith in Jesus as the power that can transform darkness into light. There's a story where Jesus was in the temple and he was teaching. And after the teaching session was over, he and his disciples left. And they went out into the streets, you know. And uh, I, I think the disciples were just thinking, you know, we've just had this, this uh, theology class. And now, now we better start talking about theology, you know. So, so they, they went up to Jesus and, and they saw a, a man who was there who was blind. So they said, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And, of course, Jesus said, no. No, 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 no. That's not on God's agenda today. On God's agenda is that light will be given to this man so that he might see. And then Jesus healed him. And he saw. Jesus touched the darkness of this man's eyes. And he saw Christ. Now, if you think about it, 
Darkness was the context of our life before we came to Christ. When he came into our darkness, that light gave us new eyes to see his beauty. It's true now that darkness covers the the face of the earth. The mission of darkness is, is continuing to hide the glory of Christ from everyone in the world. But we mustn't, lose, uh, we mustn't lose our peace or be discouraged by this because while it seems that evil is gaining ground, we must always remember that Christ has overcome all the darkness wherever Jesus is preached. His gospel changes everything. And a great ministry has been given to us as a result. So Jesus comes into our lives and he touches those dark places of sin, transforms us, changes us. And now he's given us the very same power to go into the lives of other people, touch their dark places, and see them transformed. That can be through prayer. That can be through a word. That can be through, through listening to somebody. That can be just through a conversation. Their lives can be changed because our lives have been changed. This is what Jesus has done for us. Now, the glory of God can be seen in the lives of the citizens of heaven that have been changed. Verses 24 through uh, 26 say this. By its light, that is the light of this city and the light of the Lamb, will the nations walk. By this light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will be brought, uh, will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now, I want to use the word consecrated because of its particular meaning. To consecrate something means to dedicate it to some purpose greater than itself, especially when it's associated with God. So, in other words, in the new creation, everything and everyone is set apart by God to live according to a greater purpose than its own self-interests. So let's deal with these images, and we'll talk about this a bit more. First of all, the images, okay, the gates that never close. Whether or not the gates ever close in heaven is not the point. None of the imagery here is the point. But it just simply, John is saying, these gates will never shut. There will be 24-7 access to God and his glory. Or no night, no night. It's just John's another way for John to say that evil that hides in the darkness is gone. And there's activity by the nations. They're coming and they're going and it looks like there's, there's uh, activity going on. They probably have jobs. I, I, I really do believe we're going to have jobs in heaven. Work didn't come with the fall. It came with creation. It's just the fall made it so much harder. But in heaven, we're going to have jobs and I don't know what they're going to look like. I'll tell you one thing I know. All preachers are going to be out of a job. Nobody will need to preach. So maybe that means something else I get to do, right? We're going to have work to do in order to glorify the Lord for the rest of eternity. But this isn't what John is after. What he's telling us is that a massive change has taken place from the old creation that's passed away to the new creation that's come with Christ. Remember in Psalm 2, David wrote, why do the nations rage? Why are they saying, let's throw off the yoke of this this God who demands that we uh, live by his rules. Let's get rid of all of that. 
a new status has happened in the new heaven and new earth. All of these nations, instead of being warriors against God, they have become worshipers of God. They are not claiming independence from him any longer. They are not uh, aligning themselves with all kinds of false gods or idolatries. All of that has been swept away from their heart. The leaders of these nations are now consecrated, that is dedicated to living for the glory and the honor of the one true God. That's the atmosphere of heaven in the new creation. It is filled with humble submission to the Lamb. Isaiah said that these nations will come to the Lord joyously in their obedience. Look at what it says in Isaiah 60, verse 5. Your eyes, now he's talking about these people, your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. No longer enemies of God, but joyful obedience for God. So the heart longs for communion with God. The heart longs to be changed. The heart longs to live for a purpose that's greater than itself. But more than all of these, I think what the heart longs for is to love and be loved. Would you agree? Look at what John writes. Verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is the new creation, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The new creation is a world of love because nothing unlovely is ever allowed in. Nothing unclean, nothing detestable, nothing false. Uh, When John uses that phrase, he's probably thinking about those Christians who had started out with a good profession, uh, confession of faith, but then fell away because of the persecution only to prove that they they weren't really believers in the first place. They were false believers. They will not be present. The only ones who are allowed to enter into the new heavens and new earth are those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So let's ask the question, what is that book all about? Well, I think it's a story of the elect saints who are loved by God from all eternity. Paul wrote a kind of uh, short biography of those who would be in that book. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When you put your head down on the pillow tonight, I want you to think about something. If you don't, I'm going to call you. When you put your head down on the pillow tonight, I want you to think about this. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, your name was put there before Genesis 1-1 ever happened. From eternity. From eternity. The people who are in the Lamb's Book of Life did nothing to get in that book did nothing to keep them out of that book. It was purely the love of God to choose you and put your name there. 
Get your mind around that, beloved. What is that love like? See what love the Father has for us, that we should be called the children of God before any one of us ever was born. This is the love of God. This is the new ethic of heaven, the new ethic of love in heaven. Heaven is a place of love. The elect are perfectly lovely people, right? we're, We're the elect now, and we're not perfectly lovely. Someday we certainly will be pure, no spots, no disfigurements, physical, emotional, spiritual, volitional, nothing sinful, nothing weak, nothing displeasing in any of us. I want you to imagine a time, if you can, when no one will do anything that would offend you. Yeah, that's good. I like that reaction. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? Here's a better one. Just think of a time and a place when you won't offend somebody. Yeah? No selfish motives. No, no devious plans against another saint. No distance between friends that are caused by harmful comments. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. And in it, he unpacked this very notion. Here are some of the things that he said of an atmosphere of heaven saturated in the love of Christ. The joy of heaven will never be interrupted by personal jealousies. All relationships will be sincere. And no one will ever doubt the love of another. The saints will know that God loves them. He will never, they will never doubt the greatness of his love. Nothing in any citizen of heaven will clog the heart or hinder expressions of love in another. Have you ever, have you, have you ever had a birthday party for 10 five-year-old boys? You know it's coming, right? You've got a birthday cake. And you're going to start slicing that cake. Now you've got 10 sets of eyes on you, measuring every slice. And if you get it one centimeter wrong, you're going to hear about it, right? In heaven, not a problem. You get a bigger, bigger slice than me, praise God. I want you to imagine uh, something else. I want you to imagine that uh, you and I meet for coffee someday in heaven at the gate, Judah, where they had the best bakery and coffee in town. Somebody asked me earlier if I'd actually gone to a gate, Judah, like in Jerusalem. I said, no, I just made it up. This is just a story. So here we are, we're at Gate Judah, we're having coffee, we're going to sit down, have a great conversation, and you tell me that something marvelous and wonderful has happened in your life that's never happened in my life, and I would certainly enjoy it, but it's never happened to me, it's happened to you, and you know what's going to happen because love is the ethic of heaven? Now I will so rejoice with you that my joy in your joy will enhance our love for Christ, and it'll spill over into others. That's the ethic of heaven in love. My joy, increasing your joy, which is already pretty good, which is increasing my joy, and it's spilling over into everybody else. No jealousies, no gossip, just love. Edwards called this the 
the active promotion of love that comes from an inexhaustible fountain in Christ that will spill over into all others and never dry up and never be inconsistent. Now, I, I began this mini-series, you know, with this, these four sermons, and next week will be the last in Revelation, with one intention, that is to unpack what's out there in front of us, to what John saw, is at least best I can, but also to do something else. And that something else was to get us to meditate on the realities of heaven on a regular basis as a spiritual discipline, not just a, a way of dreamily getting and escaping life, but as a spiritual discipline. And um, it was my, my goal to give three reasons at every sermon so that at the end we have 12 reasons why we should meditate on the realities of heaven. So I'm going to give you three more and then close. The first reason would be meditating on the glories and the realities of heaven sustains our spirit in affliction. You know, one of the purposes that God has for us in affliction and troubles and trials is, is certainly not to beat us down. Our afflictions are supposed to, in God's mind, they work to wean us from the world. Like, right, we hold on to things in the world, like with a death grip, like somehow they are going to be our refuge, our portion. we got to save them. So God wants to use our, our uh, afflictions to loosen the grip on that stuff, but at the same time, tighten our grip on another place, and that is on Christ. So afflictions in our lives are meant to do two things. Let go and grab hold. Let go of trust in this world's stuff and hold on to the love of Christ in tighter ways, in our trials and temptations. David said he would have fallen into despair if he didn't think that God was going to be good to him in his life. The second reason is that the realities and glories of heaven make us more helpful to others. Uh, one Puritan writer uh, understood the importance of meditating on the realities of heaven in the Christian life, and here's what he wrote. Happy are those friends who will strengthen you when you are weak who will cheer you when you are drooping and comfort you with the same comforts that they have been comforted by. When, when we are comforted in our struggles by the meditations and the glories of the realities of heaven, we are now prepared to do that for others. But what we're, what we're comforted with is by the glories and realities of a place we've never been. Think about that. We've not been to heaven, but we are comforted by the realities of heaven. Well, I, I went to school in uh, Montreal for a few years and, and tried to work there. And, and you know, it, it may say, if you've been to Montreal, you know, it's sort of like the U.S., but sort of not. Like, first of all, they don't speak just English. <laughs> it's French. And if you don't know any French, you're, you're, you're going to have a hard time. But while I was in school there, my roommates and I, we never had a television. We, you know, we were just too busy doing schoolwork, never even read a newspaper. My brother came to visit me one time from Colorado, and we just sat down, and I talked for, him for hours. What's going on? Who are you talking to? What are my friends doing? Can you tell me about, you know, what are our parents doing? What's going on in Colorado? I wanted news from home. Christian, we have news from home. Give it out. Be a newspaper of heaven for your friends and comfort them with the realities of the truth of heaven. Now, the third reason is to meditate on the glories of heaven because this honors God. 
meditating on the glories of heaven because it honors God. If the things that we feed on in this life are not the glories and riches of heaven, we will shrivel up our faith, and that dishonors God. Now, think about this. There's a, a, young, a young girl, for example, a young woman, and, uh, and she's got a wonderful wardrobe that her parents provided for her, uh, great meals every day, but she prefers to eat McDonald's, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She comes home with a McDonald's bag at dinner. She doesn't eat what her mother cooks for her. Instead of wearing the clothes that are in her closet, she loves her torn, tattered, soiled, oil-based blue jeans and torn sweatshirts that look like they've been run through a mud, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, mud. What does that say? To the community around her, what, it's, what she's saying is, you know, my parents really don't care much for me. They make me dress this way. It's a dishonor to her parents. So when we're feasting on the things of the world, and I mean feasting on them, not just enjoying them because they're good gifts from God, but feasting on them. Our souls get shriveled and it looks to the world like Christianity is just a bunch of bunk. Who needs it? If you're going to be emaciated like that, I don't want it. But when we're feasting on the realities of heaven, our faith is strengthened. So God warns us that our, our spiritual diets will not be satisfied by anything in this world like dirty jeans and torn sweatshirts. Our spirits are satisfied in the riches that are ours in Christ, and we receive those riches by faith. So feast on the riches of heaven. When you go home tonight, and you put your head on the pillow, Think about the glories of heaven that we've heard about for the last three weeks and then fall asleep in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that we need to learn and know about you and your great splendor, your riches. We are made for your glory, and we want to do all things for your glory. So, Lord, we confess how few times we give thought to the things that glorify you or to those things that bring light and life into the lives of others. We live more for ourselves than uh, for a care of your glory. So, Lord, we pray that you will keep us from falling into the traps that are set for us by the world that's passing away. Give us grace to receive every good thing that you give us with thanksgiving, but also to give us more grace to let go of those things when it's time for you to take them away. Help us to know that there is no true happiness for us when we're not living uh, for your glory nor fulfilling your purposes in our lives. You rescued us from darkness so that we might live in the light of your son's love forever. So help us to walk in his love, even this week. In Jesus' name we ask it. And everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and sing together before we, before we go.